I'll be reading from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Hear the word of God. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The word of the Lord. Let us pray together. O Lord Jesus Christ, who at your first coming did send your messenger to prepare your way before you, grant that the ministers and stewards of your mysteries may likewise so prepare and make ready your way by turning the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, that at your second coming to judge the world, we may be found an acceptable people in your sight who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit ever and ever, one God, world without end. Amen. You may be seated. About 32 years ago, my fiancé, who is now my wife, who is with me today, Shannon, and I were serving as missionary apprentices in Mexico City. We were on a team of students that helped with campus ministry at the University of Mexico. After several weeks of language training and culture shock, our missionary leaders took us on a weekend retreat to work on team dynamics. The retreat center was up in the pines and hills of the state of Puebla, outside of Mexico, uh, Mexico City. Early one morning, during our personal devotions, I found myself pondering the life of John the Baptist. Among many other things that I learned about John the Baptist that morning, the thing that gripped my heart and shook me the most was this. John the Baptist was one of the most essential, yet expendable men who ever lived. Essential because he prepared the way for the Lord Jesus. Expendable because when he had preached all of his sermons and performed his task, his life was cut short and he was taken away. Like Job... The baptizer serves as a reminder that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away in many different ways. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, in that time that he was given, John the Baptist accepted his mission and he prepared the way for the Lord. And I want to say that on a smaller, more modest scale... In the spirit of John the baptizer, my mission today is not unlike his. I am expendable, not essential. And I have come for a short moment in time to point you to Christ and to do my part to prepare you for the second advent of the Lord Jesus. How can I do this? I can do it the way John did. 
by proclaiming God's word in the sermon and in the sacrament. Our sermon passage is a part of a larger conversation that you have been hearing for the last couple of weeks. In this message, John is delivering to the Pharisees some scathing words. He speaks to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are the most conservative and the most liberal religious leaders of his day. And they were coming to his baptism, not simply as spectators, but as participants, not merely as critics, but as curious members of the community. And as a prophet, John knew who they were at heart. He knew what they were trying to hide, and so he called both the liberals and the conservatives dangerous snakes. He said to both, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were simply two sides of the same coin. Religious, deeply religious people but a people that were more interested in themselves than they were in God and his purposes. You brood of vipers. Now this is telling because what is happening here is threads from an ancient story are being woven into this story. In the beginning, God established enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And we see that conflict playing out even now in the life and ministry of John the Baptist with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see what's happening here is we see that even the devil's offspring want to flee from God's wrath. But they want to do it on their own terms. They know that water puts out fire, so they have come to get a little fire insurance through that baptism, just in case John turns out to be a true prophet. But John reminds them that his baptism is not an end in itself, but a means to an end. He's baptizing for repentance or unto repentance. Baptism was never meant to be an end in itself. Baptism is a water canal to change, a means to metamorphosis. And so John calls them to change their lives from the inside out. He wants them to know that it is not enough just to receive baptism. It is also necessary to improve upon your baptism. How? By learning a fundamental truth that All of life is repentance. And by practicing that repentance day after day, night after night, until Jesus comes. So the goal is to change your life and to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Sadly, like many of you, I'm sure, I know people who have come to receive baptism just to get a little fire insurance, and yet they have no intention of changing their life. They want to please a parent. They want to please a spouse. They want to please, perhaps, a pastor. But they have no intention of pleasing the Lord. And this is the very thing John warns his generation about. Baptism is not a way to hedge your bets. 
Now, many people, especially in our time and place and what we might call evangelical landia, assume that John baptized in a particular way and only one way. They assume that John was dipping, plunging, or immersing one person after another in the Jordan River. Quite a feat if you think about the context where we learn that all of Jerusalem, all of Judea, all of the surrounding region of people were coming to the river to be baptized by John. Now, if this were the case, that John was simply standing in the river, plunging one person after another, can you imagine how freakishly large one of his biceps would have been on that arm that supported and lifted people and how many back problems he might have had. No wonder he didn't live so long. Or maybe it's because he lost his head. (laughs) No, think about what's happening here. If John was immersing everyone, it would have required superhuman feet. But if were immersing everyone, we must also wonder why in the world the people thought that he might be the Christ, why he might be the prophet. And if he wasn't the Christ or the prophet, why in the world is he baptizing? And why were the people thinking of baptism at all? Well, let me tell you quickly two things. One, God spoke through the prophets and told the people that he would raise up a prophet like Moses from among his own people. And he said, you must listen to him and do whatever he says. And by the way, it is a matter of life or death. If you don't listen to him and do what he says, you will perish. But if you listen to him and do what he says, you will be saved. So that's one thing. The other thing is, God spoke through the prophets and told the people that the Christ would sprinkle them with water and they would be clean, and that he would pour out his Spirit upon them and they would be changed. These people knew the Scriptures inside and out, and so the details are important to them. And they're paying attention to what John is doing at this historic event. This is where Joshua and the people of Israel left the wilderness and came into the promised land. This is where they were baptized into Joshua. This is where John is now baptizing. Why? Because he is bringing the people of God back into this Exodus story. John seems to be acting like the prophet and the Christ, but he insists all over the place that he is not the prophet, he is not the Christ, he is simply the one who is preparing the way for the Lord. So the people are not expecting the Christ or the prophet to come and plunge and dunk people into water from below, but they are expecting the Christ and the prophet to come and sprinkle and pour water from above on the people. Why? Because blessings come down from heaven to men. So just like the priest had always done in their ceremonial washings, John is out in the river, baptizing all Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region, just like a Levitical priest. He's performing this ceremonial washing by sprinkling and pouring water on all the people who come to him. 
And in effect, what John is doing, the mode of baptism aside, deeper than that, what John is doing is he is calling the people to come and wash themselves in the water. He is calling them unclean. He's saying to them, you're like Gentiles. This is why you must come and be baptized. This is why you must come and be cleaned. You must prepare yourselves to meet the coming king, the one that God has promised. And so he's saying to them, you are, you are unclean and you are unfit for the advent of the one God promised to send, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And if you intend to prepare yourself for his coming and his coming is imminent, you must wash, you must get ready, you must prepare the way for the Lord in your own life. Now, one part of John's preparatory work was to act like the friend of the bridegroom. He made sure as far as it depended on him that the bride of the one to come was clean, cared for, comforted, and clothed in the garments of salvation. This is what he is doing for the community, preparing her to meet the Christ Another part of his preparing the way for the Lord meant warning the offspring of the serpent that the seed of the woman is coming to crush the serpent's head under his feet. And unless you brood of vipers repent, unless you snake-like people change, you will perish along with the serpent. The same holds true for us on both counts. So we must be careful. You've come to the crossroads of life or death. Choose this day whom you will serve. Prepare yourself every day to meet the Lord at the second advent. Now, as great as John was, he wanted everyone to know that the one coming after him was even greater. This is the supreme mark of a gospel preacher. A gospel preacher should point away from himself to Jesus. He should promote Jesus and not himself. And he should praise Jesus and not his own works. And this is why there's a transition in the story where we move away from John's life and work to looking at the life and work of Jesus as John would have us to do. Stop looking at me, John says. Look to him. And so he points us to Jesus when he says, The one coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What do you think he means by this? You get all kinds of things in your head when you read commentaries or just have conversations with people around a coffee table or over lunch. And you'll hear things like, Well, what this means is John baptized with water. But when the one who comes after him shows up, he's no longer going to baptize with water. He's going to, ab- he's going to baptize in the Spirit. It'll be abstract and ethereal and intangible. And he's also going to baptize with fire. What does that mean? Well, he's going to make your heart burn and you're going to have good feelings, right? He's going to warm up your life a little bit. There's going to be passion for him. There's going to be power in your life. And I could see how people get to all of those places, but that is not what John the Baptist had in mind. John is simply saying, Jesus 
is going to do everything that I'm doing, but he's going to do more than I'm doing. And he's going to do it better than I'm doing because he's greater than I am. So John is telling the world that his kinsman redeemer is coming into the world to lead his followers on a new exodus from the captivity of the serpent to the liberty of the Savior. So think about this, that as it was in the days of Moses, Jesus will proclaim liberty for the captives to serpent-like priests and kings. He will lead his people to victory over serpents in the palace. And he will lead his people to victory over serpents through the water of baptism and over fiery serpents in the wasteland and over the serpent of all serpents when he finally brings them into paradise, the new promised land. And that will be the end of all sin and death. That will be the end of all sorrow and despair. That will be the end of the devil's works. So Jesus will baptize with spirit and with fire. He will be the true and better pillar of cloud and fire, a shelter in the heat, a light in the darkness. He will guide his people on their way through the wasteland of the world, the flesh and the devil. And one place that you can see this so clearly is in the story of the transfiguration where Jesus stands on the sacred mountain with his disciples in the glory cloud with Moses and Elijah. And they're talking about his exodus. And it's in the midst of that conversation, in the midst of that glorious cloud that the Father tells all the world to listen to his Son with whom he is well pleased. The one who baptizes with fire and the Spirit is among us. He will baptize with the Spirit, meaning that He will pour out His Spirit on all people mercifully and richly. His Spirit will be poured out by God, and His Spirit will pour out God's love into our hearts. He will breathe new life into His followers. The Spirit will lead and teach and comfort and guide Jesus' followers. He will be the spring of living water that flows from the rock of salvation. The Spirit will sign, seal, and secure salvation for all those who follow Christ. Not by their works, but by His grace. And Jesus will baptize with fire, meaning that He will purge our sins and purify our faith. His fire will discipline the faithful, but it will destroy those who fall away. His fire will warm the devout, but it will warn the deviant. His fire will test some, but it will trouble others. As we confessed moments ago, we believe Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. And at the second advent, Jesus will come to do just that. He will sort and sift the whole mass of humanity, including his church. And on that day, judgment will be definitive and final. It will mark the end of God's patience with sinners and the end of second chances and spiritual mulligans. It will be the end of the game. John says his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. 
but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The Lord knows those who are his. He knows how to deliver the godly for himself, but he also knows how to destroy the ungodly with justice. And it's with these words that John the baptizer is actually echoing the prophets of old, Jeremiah the weeping prophet and Isaiah the rejoicing evangelist. Both spoke about threshing and winnowing, not in a mean-spirited, hellfire and brimstone kind of way, but with tender-hearted compassion, speaking clearly of the promises of God and making their plea to all to turn and trust the Lord. Jeremiah did it through tears that never seemed to cease. Isaiah did it with rejoicing, looking at the beautiful feet on the mountains, bringing good news. And these are the words that he spoke. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel you shall glory When the poor and the needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Did you hear the echoes? Did you see the connection between John the baptizer, Isaiah the rejoicing evangelist, Jeremiah the weeping prophet, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you hear the connections between baptism, judgment, and rejoicing? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, as we wait in eager anticipation of the second advent of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us make the most of the time that we have been given. Between now and the second coming, whenever that might be, let us make every effort to live the baptized life. Let us confess our sins and our need of mercy. Let us repent and believe the gospel. Let us keep in step with the Spirit that the Spirit may produce a fruitful harvest in us. Let us pass through the fiery trials of this life, trusting that the testing of our faith purifies and preserves us for the next life. And let us rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Let us rejoice And finally, let us do all these things, morning and evening, until the Lord comes, praying that he comes quickly. At the second advent, Jesus will mark the antithesis between followers and fans, between those who have fallen away and those who have always followed. And so I ask you, as you look forward to that day, what are you preparing yourself to be? How are you preparing yourself to meet the Lord? When He comes, in what condition do you want Him to find you? Do you want Him to see in you 
a spirit-led saint or a flesh-driven sinner? 